You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Andrew Leavold. Hey, wonderful to be back. We are kicking off a month of discussing French films with a look at Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Cirque Rouge. It's a wonderfully taught heist film starring a terrific group of actors. Alain Delon stars as Corey and Gianmaria Valente is Vogel. They are two cons who come together via very unusual circumstances. 
When they're tipped to a good heist by a prison guard, they, along with Eve Montan as Jansen, perform a daring jewelry heist that is a tour de force of filmmaking. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen The Red Circle, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Sam, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? Somewhere like 10 or 12 years ago, I decided to go beyond Le Samurai and start watching some of Melville's other films and was just immediately obsessed and watched them all in like a month. And I think I actually reached out to you to find something. I think when you write this letter, maybe, was the one that I couldn't find anywhere. So needless to say, I absolutely love this film. It's got two of my favorite actors together in like a buddy heist drama. What more do you need? Andrew, how about yourself? Well, like Sam, it was on the back of Le Samurai, which I was completely obsessed with when I finally managed to um, find a video copy back in the 90s when I was setting up Trash Video. The other two Alain Delon films that he made with Melville, um, Flick and Red Circle, were only available in Australia in those butchered, badly dubbed into English um, VHS copies. And I managed to um, avoid them like the plague <laughs> for ages because I just knew that they were inferior copies of the films. And when I finally found Le Cirque Rouge in French uh, in its two hours, 20-minute version, at some point in the late 90s, it was a revelation. It was suitably advanced on Le Samurai in the same way that Fistful of Dollars is advanced upon by the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is the other thing that really strikes me with with uh, Melville, is that he's kind of like the French Sergio Leone. And I'm sure this has been said before. It's hardly an original idea, and I'm sure it's been put more eloquently by other people. But, uh, you know, the three films that Melville did with Delon are very much like Leone's Dollars trilogy with Clint Eastwood, in that they form a very loose trilogy thematically, as well as sharing some of the same actors. Really, Le Cirque Rouge is the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's, you know, the the fates of three men entwined over a, a bag of treasure. Leone being obsessed with American cinema in the same way that Melville is, perhaps more John Ford than John Huston in the case of Melville. But I think that those two guys definitely follow a very similar trajectory as far as their obsession with American pulp cinema goes and, and genre in general. This is, for me, a similar kind of obsessive love of a trilogy as with the Leone Dollars films. I don't know if I saw this one before 2002, 2003, but there was a revival screening series of it before the Criterion version of it first came out on DVD. Man, I miss that. I miss this whole idea of having these revival screenings of stuff right before it goes to Criterion. That's something that used to happen around here quite a bit. Um, you know, Janice would put out a restored version and you could see it theatrically. And then six months later, you could pick up the Criterion. And I was lucky to see this on the big screen at the Detroit Film Theater with a pretty good sized audience and not a peep, not a peep during the robbery scene. 
everyone was just on the edge of their seats. I mean, Melville is a master filmmaker and he just was able to keep us all in suspense with this. I mean, it is up there. The high scene is up there with the, the greats. You know, it's up there with Rafifi. It's up there with Asphalt Jungle. It's just terrific. But what I really got out of the screening too was the humor. You know, things like when Valente comes out of the trunk and, uh, <laughs> is able to save, uh, Delon's character. It was pretty damn funny. There were some really funny bits in here. And I totally love what you just said, Andrew, as far as the good, the bad, and the ugly and the idea of the threes that come through this. I mean, one of my favorite shots in this whole film is after Delon, the Corey character gets out of jail. And he heads right towards a pool hall and we just get the pool table is the entire wide screen. There's nothing around the edges and you get the three balls that he's passing around on the table. And then what happens? Other pool cues come in and that's how we get introduced to these two thugs that are there to take back money that he just took from a guy who owed him a guy who he never mentioned his name before he went to prison. All the amazing shots are just, I feel like with Melville's films, you could watch them over and over again and notice totally different things each time. Something I don't think stuck with me in the past that I really noticed and loved this time around is this superintendent character who has the best dialogue. He basically just talks about how Everyone is terrible, and if they're born innocent, they go bad, and life is the same as it's always been, but only worse. (laughs) He really is the film's voice of conscience. He really is, and it's like this coming off the back of Army of Shadows, which is so nihilistic and so full of despair. It's like there is humor here, but you get the sense that like that thread is, has only gotten stronger in this film. I mean, of course, all of Melville's films, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen any of them, they all end in tragedy. And (laughs) this is no exception. It's been a while since I've seen army of shadows is the color palette as desaturated as it is here. Yes. Yeah. So army of shadows, the circle rouge and unflick all have this like, black, gray, blue color palette that I've definitely seen comments online from people watching the Blu-rays who are like, how dare these companies do this color grading? It's like, actually, (laughs) it's not the companies. (laughs) Something's wrong with my disc. (laughs) (laughs) Why is there no red in this film? (laughs) Right, other than the titular red circle. I think the idea is to reduce the entire color palette down to the color of raincoats, soiled raincoats. So you get olive, you get gray, (laughs) you get black, and that's it. But at least in Red Circle, you get those punctuations of red, you know, the splashes of red, which are very startling when they do appear. And there are also some really gorgeously decorated sets. The Sharpshooter who's a former policeman whose career has basically gone away because of his alcoholism. He lives in this room that has this incredible floor to ceiling, blue and green striped wallpaper. Like even the door is wallpapered. (laughs) I think it's to suggest that he's living in a prison of his own making. 
Yeah, and there's that great moment with the delirium tremens when these, like, fake tarantulas dance across the room, and it's like, is this going to become a Fulci movie? Like, what's happening right now? Yeah, I love the editing in that scene, because it's like, okay, is uh, Montand even here? Because I don't think that he liked the, uh, I mean, he's got those rats on him at one point, but I don't think he liked the lizards, so there's a lot of shots with the lizards without him in it, but then there are some with him there, I think with like the big snakes. Maybe the lizards refused to work with him. They didn't want to be upstaged by Yves Montand. I wonder if that little sequence is supposed to be a reference to the lost weekend where like the bats and the, the bugs are coming out of the wall for Ray Milan. I'm pretty sure it is. And I've also seen um, man with the golden arm referenced. But I don't remember hallucination sequences. So Lost Weekend is definitely the peg year, I believe. I mean, he loved his American noir films. Well, and he loved his fake quotes from Eastern religion as well. <laughs> Which is my favorite. Just that he would make up these quotes in the beginning of his movies. And partly it upsets me because I feel like now we have to deal with people like Quentin Tarantino doing it. But I just love it. <laughs> so with uh, Le Samurai, there's an opening that is a basically a fake quote from the Book of Bushido, and on this, there's a fake quote from um, someone involved with uh, Buddhism that uh, they talk about how the Buddha drew a circle with a piece of red chalk and said, when men meet one day, whatever may befall each with diverging paths, on said day, they will inevitably come together in the red circle. And it's well, like, maybe he did. You weren't there. Uh, maybe maybe <laughs> it sets us up with this whole idea of these disparate men coming together and yeah eventually fate will befall them you know that fickle finger of fate that we've seen in other films i mean i know that he was you mentioned john houston earlier he's a big john houston fan i think he pulled a little bit from asphalt jungle to make this film i know he really was talking about uh, the kremlin letter around the same time loved his houston i mean <laughs> treasure of the sierra madre definitely has that way nihilistic ending as does asphalt jungle that really plays into this bringing these three characters together though I don't think that Valente actually makes the poster. I think that it's... Uh, Which is crazy. I mean, I get if you're a marketing company or a studio trying to market to a French audience, maybe they don't give a shit about this Italian actor, but it's like, come on. Why are you putting the cop on the poster when there are the three... It should be the three criminals up at the top of it. Well, I, I do remember reading... Melville saying that um, Volante wasn't a name at all in France at the time. So I think the marketing would have reflected that position, whereas Volante would have been all over the Italian poster. And that was the idea for him being cast in the first place, I believe, that Italian money would have demanded an Italian star. I partly also get it because I feel like between 66 and 68 was when his career was really like taking that swing into more international fame but 1970 it's like he's got investigation of a citizen above suspicion and le cercle rouge so i feel like that was his big year on a more international level anyway but he's perfect so it's rude that he's not on the poster melville hated him so maybe it was uh 
Maybe it was him saying, no. I think the feeling was mutual. (laughs) Edited him out of the poster, out of the marketing. Just cut out the cop and paste his face over top of it. And Andre Bruvrel, who plays the inspector, had a long career in French film, but it was almost always comic. So him playing this more hard-boiled inspector was a pretty different turn for him. He does have some comic moments, though, like when they sort of goad the gangster's son into almost killing him or potentially killing himself or trying to kill himself. And yeah, that was scene, hilarious. Yes. But the way the way that he like runs back and forth down the hallway in a panic and like tries to slow himself down when he gets back to the <laughs> interrogation room, it, I think it is kind of funny. Well, I've got a question for you. Why is it that we get to see the inside of his flat and him feeding his cats twice, not just once? <laughs> so really, I mean, if Le Cirque Rouge can be reduced down to a love story, it's a love story between the inspector and his cats. And his three cats. And when he can't find one of them, he's very concerned. Of course, it's the three cats. You know, we're, we're going to play with triplets a lot in this. Even that the pool game is just a game that you play with three balls. And the sign outside of the pool hall has the one red ball and the two white balls. It's like, okay, yeah, you're definitely playing with those threes in here. He loved his geometric structures in his plots. In the opening of the film, after we get past the scroll, it's almost a little mini movie until itself. And I like how it pulls the rug out from under you because it starts with this racing car. And so my immediate thought is, Oh, they're on the run from somebody. And you've got these four guys inside and cops and criminals dressed very similarly in a Jean-Pierre Melville film. So they've got their, you know, their overcoats and their hats and all this. And they, I can't remember if they run through a red light. There's definitely a red light again with There's the a red. red circle. Yes. And they make it to this train station, though you don't know it's a train station at first. I'm just like, oh my God, what, what's going on here? No, no, it's just we're almost late for this train. So we need to drop off the inspector and his companion, the Jean Maria Valente character, Vogel. We need to drop them off so that he can, I guess, take Vogel to jail. It's such a weird, uncomfortable scene between the two. Like, I I feel like in other movies, when you see a detective who's forced to transport a criminal, there's usually some kind of banter, and they break up the tension by having these, like, snippy lines of dialogue. They barely talk to each other, and... Fogel just like immediately tries to go to sleep or pretends to be asleep as we realize. (laughs) You're right. It's all tension in that scene. Yeah. Not a word between them. That scene exists purely as an exercise in tension. You know, there's, there's no character development through banter whatsoever. It's straight down to his flight, basically. And Melville is so great at that. I can't imagine many other directors being able to have like throughout his cinematography or throughout his filmography, being able to have so many sequences of pretty much complete silence where you're just hooked. Like you can't look away. You would obviously uh, remember the opening sequence from Unflick where, you know, rain swept coastal town 
first 15 minutes. It's so dreary. Yeah, and so grey. And uh, the first 15 minutes is a is a wordless bank heist, which absolutely rivets you to the film from the opening shots. And same with um, Le Deuxième Souffle, you know, uh, opens with the Lino Ventura character escaping from jail. That's the first 10 minutes of the film. And again, no dialogue, no music. It's entirely powered along by montage. That, I think, montage is the genius of, of Melville in the maintenance of tension. It's also crazy to me how, as you pointed out, there are these scenes throughout his films that are kind of similar, but they feel so different. Like, you could watch every Melville movie back-to-back in a day, maybe two days, and it wouldn't feel like, oh, here I am watching the same thing again, and I don't know how he does that. There's definitely themes that come through, the whole idea of, you know, the codes of honor and the relationships between men and very few women in this movie at all. This is the one where they are the most absent, I think. But, yeah, it's those themes are there, but such different castings of these different, um, you know, set pieces that they have. And a lot of it is playing off of American things that we've seen or even other French films or other films from other countries. But man, is he able to bring them together in such a different way? Well, his, his cinema is the ultimate in international hybrid genre hybrid. You know, French people would have been looking at that film saying, Oh, how American people in America are looking at it saying how French. And really, it's a completely unique concoction between the two. It's a transnational um, film in every sense of the word. I, I think that's why those films really do exist in a universe of their own, completely controlled by the universe builder Melville. Those films are entirely a figment of not only his imagination, but also a summation of his experiences. So I think you've you've got in his films the the combination of his pre-war and wartime experiences, and then the fantasy world of cinema colliding and creating this completely idiosyncratic beast. The few times his films are set in America, like Two Men in Manhattan, I know isn't very popular, but I absolutely love it, which co-stars Melville in such a, <laughs> such a weird role. But it's the same thing where it's it's just this total fantasy place. And like something like Two Men in Manhattan, it has these familiar cityscapes, if you've watched a lot of movies set in New York, but it's this universe all to its own. And the thing that I find so nice, for lack of a better word, about Le Cirque Rouge is if Unflick didn't exist and it was his last film, there is something weirdly kind of sweet. I don't want to say optimistic, but kind of sweet about it in the sense that most of his films are all about betrayal and people turning on each other. And even if like Le Doulos, there are these like misunderstandings that cause people to do that or miscommunications here they're loyal to each other in a way that people aren't usually in his movies, like without any ulterior motives. It's just, it's nice. Even though they, you know, don't live happily ever after together. 
So we've got Vogel on the train and eventually he escapes, which I still laugh out loud the way that he kind of throws himself out the window. And we're cross-cutting his story with Corey, the Elaine Delon character, and him getting out of jail. And the prison guard acts more like a criminal than Corey does, which I find interesting, the way that he puts a little thing on the door to make it seem like the door is locked and comes in and is talking with him. And then when another guard is checking on the cell, how he hides behind the wall and just like staying out of uh, sight because he's there to tell Corey a little bit about this idea for a heist and uh, wants Corey to work on this. And we were talking about the set decoration and the lack of color and man, when Corey gets out and he goes to see this guy, Rico, when he's in getting, uh, his stuff back from the prison, you know, one hat, black, one watch, broken, those kind of things, he gets these three photos of this woman and he very pointedly leaves the photos in prison. And the guys are like, no, no, you forgot your photos. Okay, great. And we get to see what is going on with this woman that she is with Rico, this guy that he used to hang around with and Rico's house. We talked about uh, point blank a few months ago and there's a scene in there where everybody's wearing green and it's green on green on green. And the way that Borman's talking about color theory and all this stuff, Rico's house is her apartment is so similar in the way that it's blue. And it's just all of these shades of blue from dark blue to the lightest blue and just kind of astounds your eye with the, all of these different shades of blue that are going on. And it becomes one of the most cool. And I mean that not in the, that's super cool daddy. Oh, but cool as in just unfeeling cold sets that there is. It's just terrific. And I love the woman in the bed and how she actually gets up and is listening at the door. And you've got Corey on the other side of the door. And when uh, Rico comes back to bed. She's back in bed already, pretending that she was asleep the entire time. I just, I love the interaction between Rico and Delon and just like, oh yeah, stick around till 9 a.m. We'll go over to the bank and I'll get money for you. And I'm like, man, I'm glad that you're not stupid, Corey. I'm glad you know to look for that safe that the guy's got in his house. And he has those weird flower things on the wall. The set design in his apartment is crazy. It's very artificial. It is. It feels a little set-like rather than apartment-like, but I'm okay with that. I like the artifice of it. Yeah, it almost reminds me a little bit of a Jalo set where it's like he's trying to be chic and show you that he, you know, is successful and has all these expensive things and it just looks fake. Corey, after he disarms these two thugs that Rico sends out immediately to get his money back, Gets this big, I would say, American-looking car. I mean, it seems like something that Melville would like. It's supposed to be an American car, yes. And I love this whole thing where he goes and grabs some food. And Vogel, by this time, has gone through this forest. And as uh, there's a manhunt that is starting. So Corey has gone through one checkpoint. And he's going to go through another checkpoint with Vogel in the trunk of his car. And when Vogel reveals himself... I just love it. I love when Corey pulls over, opens up the trunk, you know, hey, it's it's okay. The coast is clear. And immediately that 
spark between these two guys and their relationship and which becomes just key to this film. And it's never, you know, you talk about how it's a buddy film and they are buddies in this and maybe a little bit more, but they just, they never have that banter. You know, it's not freebie and the bean going back and forth. You know, it's not like any buddy cop film or buddy thief film that you see in the States. These guys are as cool as you possibly can. And by that, I mean, it's cool. Daddy. Oh, these two characters are super cool. Yeah. It's hard to say who is more attractive and who's cooler. Which I'm sure Alain Delon and Jean-Marie Volante had their own feelings about that, but they're just so great together here. And I do love the way you pointed out how they don't have any of that banter. And I think so often in these movies, like crime movies and film noir, when it's mostly men, it's almost like they have to do things to dissipate the tension or potential awkwardness and they don't even bother they're just like okay we're here we're wearing these suits that make us look hot and we're gonna go plan this crime it's like it's so much more simple than it usually ever is in these movies yeah there's none of that i'm going to talk you into this type of thing it's basically like we're criminals we both got out of prison, whether legally or illegally, and you have nowhere to go, so come with me. We do crimes. That's what we do. I think it's a love story between two guys who don't need to speak of their love. You know, there's beautiful platonic relationship between two guys who know that they're scoundrels. And so they meet through, you know, a, a bizarre twist of fate. He just happens to choose Elaine Delon's boot, you know, the boot of his car. They're like, oh, you're a bad man. I'm a bad man. Let's hang out. Let's do crimes. Let's hang out. You can live at my house and wear my pajamas. It'll be fine. I'll throw away the picture of this woman. It'll just be us two guys here. Everything's fine. Don't read into it. Something I was thinking about this time around is, does he get into the boot of his car accidentally, or is Delon hoping that that will happen because that was kind of how I read it is like he intentionally parks somewhere in the way of the manhunt and leaves the trunk unlocked, even though he has guns in there. So it sort of seemed to me like he wanted that to happen, but maybe I was just, you know, wishful thinking it <laughs> a little bit. It's that Freudian thing, you know, like when you, <laughs> he might not have done it consciously, but I think that there was an unconscious desire there. I think Buddha foretold the whole thing when he, uh, you know, made that quote. When he made that quote, he was thinking of those two guys and Yves Montand in particular. We can ask our Buddhist friends. I'm sure they'll agree. <laughs> well, and that's the thing about all these Melville movies is he always has just the best actors, the most like macho actors in relation to each other in such interesting ways. And I, I know, Mike, you made a comment earlier, earlier about how there are very few women in this film or in Melville's films in general. And it's like when he does have them there, he has no idea what to do with them. And you can, <laughs> you can tell that he's like kind of uncomfortable and doesn't want them there. Aside from maybe the first couple of films, which aren't really crime movies, they're more melodramas and it's more natural. But in these sort of like post Le Doulos films, there maybe is 10 minutes total of screen time for women. 
Yeah, but you notice that the most women get screen-wise are in the nightclub sequences. There's always a shot in a nightclub. There's always a stage show going on in addition to the clockwork dollies who are, you know, handing out cigarettes. But there's always um, a stage show, a quite elaborate stage show. And in the case of Le Cirque Rouge, they're doing some kind of bizarre flapper number from the 30s, which corresponds to what I understand about Melville, that um, when he sets his films in Marseille or in the gangster hotspots of Paris, you know, Pigalle or Montmartre, he's very much drawing on his memories of that um, criminal demimonde from before World War II. And so um, his version of the criminal underworld is very much rooted in that 1930s milieu. And so him recreating a flapper number, you know, for Le Cirque Rouge is him reaching into his um, pre-resistance past, I believe, and recreating it. I could see that. As he would with a lot of the nightclub sequences, I think that they would have been, um, his version of Montmartre or Pigalle is definitely as he remembered it as a young man and not as it was in the 50s or 60s. There is this really fascinating kind of folding of time that happens in the broader universe of his films where, like you pointed out, there's some elements that it seems like, okay, is this supposed to be set in the 30s? And then some things that make it seem like, no, this is the 60s. And in a way, it reminds me of some of Fassbender's films, which I think do the same thing, that have these sort of early... World War II or slightly pre-World War II elements combined with Germany in the 70s. And you're like, where are we? You know, film is a very fetishistic art form, you know, because you're, you're dealing with the, the uh, elements that the filmmaker finds the most fascinating. In the case of Melville, you know, his fetishes seem to be in the crime set pieces. So that relates directly to the films that he would have been watching as a young man in London, you know, during the resistance, discovering Hollywood gangster cinema for the very first time, possibly, but also his experiences as a young man, you know, pre-World War II. The things that he cherishes the most are very much rooted in that period of time, probably between the mid-30s and the early 40s. So time folding in on itself is very much uh, determined by what Melville holds very dear to him as a young man, probably during his most formative experiences. And that is then reflected in the images from his films and also in the themes of his films as a much older man. There is also this very strange sense in a lot of his films that these values his protagonists seem to hold, which is definitely true of Le Cirque Rouge, are relics of a past time when things were different. And it's almost like the people who try to hold on to those values, like their sense of honor and, you know, duty and loyalty, they have no place in the modern world. So it is, again, that sort of clashing of, I'm sure what he felt must have been like the state of the world before World War II and what it's like after that. Yeah, well, I think Army of Shadows really underscores that that idea that um, the 
ideals of brotherhood, honor among thieves, loyalty, those intense feelings of betrayal are very much part of that world that is changing during World War II. You know, the, that um, the, those values are being eroded during the Nazi occupation again. So he's certainly clinging onto these pre-war ideals. Definitely his gangster films are firmly anchored in that pre-war ideal. That can't survive in the modern world, which is why all of the characters die at the end. Like the wild bunch. That's, it's pretty much like his wild bunch, you know? I think he might have actually nailed it. With these characters, you know, we talked, especially when we talked about Ledulo, um, we talked about the hats. And these characters are interesting because Jansen, the Yves Montan character, he wears a hat. But Valente and, and Delon, they do not wear hats in this film. And it's very out of character. It almost feels like talking about the Wild Bunch. It feels like they're the next, you know, wave of it. It feels like it kind of reminds me of um, uh, The Killer a little bit, Jean Wu's film, where you've got the more classical gangsters, your Chow Yun Fat, your Sydney, these type of characters, and Chow very much, you know, wears his hat when he's coming out of church at one point. But then you've got that next wave of gangsters that have no code. They have no honor. I think Delon and Valente still have code. They still have honor, but yeah. that they're making that transition that they aren't wearing the hats. They're this newer breed. But I think that next generation is going to be the one that is born without any of these codes that these men have. I think if you sit Le Cirque Rouge within, you know, time frame of uh, French society and politics and history, it, it could be his reaction to May 1968. Uh, and the idea that France was moving into a much lawless time, the terrorists who he would have identified Gian Maria Volante with, you know, those damn leftists, he would have believed as a Gaullist, as a member of the French resistance, that the, the new breed of terrorists or criminal are the ones without honor and that uh, France was moving into a much darker and much more lawless place. Well, also, isn't there a whole thing about how they don't know if Vogel is really guilty or not? And there's that great conversation with the superintendent and the superintendent literally says, who cares? Everyone's guilty of something. <laughs> it also makes me think that between Army of Shadows and Le Cirque Rouge, that maybe they're a reaction to things like the sorrow and the pity and this kind of destruction of the myth of the French resistance where Certainly there are people like Melville who were in it and risked their lives repeatedly, fought very bravely. But then after the war, there are all of these people who claim to be in the resistance when most of them weren't. And it took Afiol's documentary to sort of shove that in everyone's faces in a way that I think a lot of people found really unpleasant, especially that older generation of Gaullists. And so you kind of have like a reckoning, I think, for some of that older generation, like, okay, maybe this was all a fantasy. And it's like, yes, the resistance existed, but not on the scale that we've now mythologized it to be. Yeah, which Melville would have 
assisted in mythologizing as well. Which I kind of feel like he had some regrets about, which to me is sort of what Army of Shadows is about, is like, yes, there were people who fought, and it wasn't always this honorable thing. Like, you had to make these horrible decisions, and you had to be willing to die, and willing to betray people to stay with your code, and I'm sure it was a complicated issue for him. I I can't recall seeing any other film that dealt with the underground during World War II that was so bleak, would have, as far as I'm concerned, would have been so realistic as Army of Shadows. And yet, in post-May 1968, left-wing lectures were turning on filmmakers like Melville because he was associated with that um, older Gaullist generation of filmmakers, and they were wanting to break away from the part, the traditional conservative, the right wing, the establishment. And so Melville kind of got looped in those, even though he wasn't, you know, a, a, a right wing, he, he was a wing liberian, but it still didn't sit well with the, with the ultra leftist uh, intelligentsia at the time. One of the things that is always really fascinated me about Melville is that sense that like he doesn't belong in one particular camp. He's just always been like floating out in the middle of nowhere because like you can't put him with the French new wave because he came before them and you can't really put him with some of the more mainstream directors who want of his generation who wanted to make like classic French films because like you said, he's doing this crazy hybrid that merges, you know, old Hollywood and his romanticization of America. And so I just love, I think maybe that's why his films feel so distinct, even though they do have that film noir influence and the John Huston influence, because he just was always out there doing his own thing. And such a wild example of independent filmmaking, even though I don't think he's talked about that way now because he's like this important French art house director, but like he did it all on his own and like started his own production company and which just seems crazy. Built his own studio from the ground up. And then it burned to the ground and he started it again anyway. Talk about right determined. On. All while wearing that big giant Elmer Fudd hat. <laughs> <laughs> Those big sunglasses that he Or loved. not Elmer Fudd, Yosemite Sam. Who is it who wears the big giant hat? Yosemite Sam, right? Yes, yeah. I love Yves Montan in this film. I love that, you know, we talked about how we've got our two guys together, Vogel and Corey, and they're like, okay, we're going to need a sh- sharpshooter. So they end up getting Yves Montan, and we talked about his Delirium Tremens scene where he's got the hallucinations, and it's kind of funny at the same time as being very sad. I love him once he has a job to do that he just immediately, and I know it's not realistic at all, but just immediately is like, okay, I'm off the booze. And that we get to see his progress through the film, and we get to see it in a few different ways. One of them is his hands and do his hands tremble. And the other is, can he look at himself in a mirror? And we get a few moments of him checking himself out, just how awful he looks initially. 
after he goes and cases the jewelry place, he comes back home and he's lighting a cigarette and he sees that his hand isn't shaking anymore and he's able to look at himself in the mirror again. And I just, I love that. I love that we have this progress, this progress of this character starting where he started and is able to just move his way through this and that he is again, this former cop, but he's so loyal to the cause and he just, is so disillusioned with the police that he's now this great sharpshooter for criminals. Yeah. It's kind of funny that um, the film is almost like paraphrasing the Rolling Stones line. You know, every cop is a criminal and all the sinners saints, you know, that, uh, but, but even Montan has that great moment halfway through the heist where he pulls out his drink flask, takes a smell of it and then goes, no, and puts it back into his jacket. I love that. And then almost selflessly gives away his share of, of the loot. Yeah, he is, I think, one of the best underrated parts of this movie. It's hard to compete with Delano Volante, but earlier I think Andrew made a comment about how sometimes Melville's mo- movies are a little confusing if you're not familiar with the actors because everyone fucking dresses the same. And I think this one blurs that line even more with having the former cop and the prison guard on the, so like unequivocally on the side of the criminals. And you get the sense that it's like they are that way because they're so fed up with the way that the criminal justice situation is. Like they've just given up. It is deeply cynical worldview, you know, and, and it's also an extrapolation of um, the role of the cops in Le Samurai, where they're participating in a game, you know, to see who can be the bigger criminal. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I, and I mean, even I feel like that sense also extends into Italian cinema, because like I was saying earlier, the same year is Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, which is like even more grim and nihilistic in the way that it, it shows Volante as this detective who's like, all right, let's see what I can get away with. Can I get away with murder? Yeah. And it's, and it's part of that much wider um, cycle of films like confessions of a police captain and uh, you know, those Franco Nero films where he's combating uh, corrupt judges and corrupt politicians. And basically everyone's on the take. It's very much a very peculiar cycle of films reflecting deep cynicism with um, the Italian system at the time. So I mentioned the character Rico, who pretty much betrays uh, Corey, but there's also the character Santi, who, and I love the name that it sounds like Saint, that Santi, who runs the club that you mentioned, where you have all these musical numbers going on, all these women dressed exactly the same, all doing the same movements is kind of interesting. He ends up, he sets up these guys with offense for all of the jewels, though he ultimately betrays them, but he betrays them because his son is picked up on a Trump up, trumped up charge of uh, marijuana and the cops, not the inspector, but one of his coworkers um, almost causes the kid to kill himself. And to the point where I don't even know if the kid does survive. And they use this uh, charge against the son to 
makes Santi do what he does, makes him betray the rest of the, the criminals. I mean, the cops are awful in this film. What has changed? It's the only reason why Santi is forced to become a, a police informant against every instinct in him to uh, maintain the criminal code. You feel so bad for him. And Francois Perrier is great in that role where he just, from the first scene where he's behind the bar and looks at the cop, like, get the fuck out of here. Like, I'm not helping you. The cop is so interesting too. The inspector is, is great because, you know, I mentioned how he's got more of like this, uh, comedic chops to him. He looks like he has lived. Andre Bouvril has this really kind of messed up nose that goes in a few different directions. So I l- love the look of him and that he is, uh, you know, playing against type. He doesn't sing or dance in this film. Very much a straight character. So concerned about those three cats of his. I love that uh, we get that those scenes twice, as you mentioned in the film. It would have been so weird if Melville had his way to cast Lino Ventura as the inspector instead of Andre. I mean, can you imagine Lino Ventura going, here, puss, here, puss, 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 puss. No, not no, in a million just years. No. But it also would have made it feel like a very different film because I think what is a little bit confusing about Le Cirque Rouge is that Borville's inspector is really, even though the cops do awful things, he feels very human. The scenes with the cats kind of cement Melville's desire to humanize him. But it's like, okay, so then why is he doing all of this? Like, is it because the inspector general has put his job on the line? Why be such an asshole? Well, he knows that he's under investigation, you know, by the police who police the police. And so he obviously knows that they have a file on him and he's desperately trying to crack a case in which he was partially responsible for in the first place, allowing um, Bogle to escape. So there's a sense of desperation to the character, which is at odds with his humanity. And that's where the interesting stuff lies, you know, in, in the relationship between him and the police department and between him and his prey. And, you know, they do sometimes kindle films about police inspectors being hunters and the criminal their prey. And that is a game. Well, he even has that line of dialogue where at the very beginning when Fogel escapes, and I love that Fogel means bird in German. It's such a cute little addition. But when Fogel escapes... When he flies the coop? Yeah, he does indeed fly the coop right right out the window. The inspector has this line about how he thinks Fogel has gone in a certain direction, and he says it's my hunter's instinct. It's like, okay, yet another cat and mouse game, but of course it's more complicated than that. When he's able to describe what happens in the forest, you know, I mentioned that moment where the two thugs come and they uh, strong arm Corey and... uh then Vogel just kind of hops out of the trunk and saves the day. One of my favorite moments it's in the film. literally pops out of the trunk. And then the inspector is there in the forest later on. It's like cut to forest. These guys are already there. And he's basically describing what's going on with the scene. I mean, I mentioned the killer before. Obviously, Melville was a huge influence on John Woo, even down to 
that shot in Hard Boiled where they've got the bullet in the pipe and they're trying to escape from the uh, the downstairs of the hospital. And that is so much the same shot of Montan with his sharpshooter rifle and how he's got it set up on the tripod, but then he ends up taking it off of the tripod to shoot that lock and is able to do it better by hand because he just has the feel of it. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's so similar with that, but I mean, Danny Lee, sorry, going back to the killer, Danny Lee sitting in the exact same spot that Chow Yun Fat was in being able to put together all of those things. He's basically one step behind Fat throughout so much of that and is living that same life that Chow Yun Fat is. It feels very similar to the way that Bouvril is able to just put himself in the shoes of Corey or Vogel. It's so fascinating to me how a lot of these films, their sort of common thread is the way that these men bond with each other. Sometimes in hostile ways, often in pretty violent ways, but you get the sense that in a lot of Melville's films, and definitely in John Woo's films, that like the only meaningful relationships these men sometimes have are these sort of fraught cop-criminal relationships. If memory serves, I think that the vocal character was actually supposed to be played by Belmondo for a while, which would have been an interesting thing to have both of, because Belmondo had been in more of the earlier Melville films. And then I want to say, what was it? Borsellino came out with that had Belmondo and Delon. And I'm not sure if that then soured Melville on the idea of having them both in this one, or if it was just that thing that we were talking about earlier, as far as, Oh, if this is uh, international money, we should probably have uh, Jean Maria. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Who I almost didn't recognize without his mustache. I'm so used to seeing Valente with the mustache from all the spaghetti western roles that I'm just like, who is this guy? There's a mustache swap going on here, and no offense to Delon, but I think Valente is way handsomer with a mustache, whereas Delon, it's like he's too pretty to really. Pull it off. I mean, he does, but it's a little strange. It is a little strange seeing him with that mustache. And there are times where Valente is so pale that I'm like, is he supposed to be sick in this film? I'm not sure what's going on. Yeah, (laughs) right. I love to see Delon and Belmondo together, but the nature of their friendship and the way a lot of their dual role films went, I feel like you would have had to have some of that banter and the the kind of silent camaraderie going on here maybe wouldn't have worked if it was Belmondo. I totally agree. It would have ended up more like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's almost good that Volante didn't get along with Melville. I think he didn't necessarily get along with Delon that much, though Delon would be that peacekeeper sometimes. I was uh, listening to an, an interview, and they were talking about how uh, the tension on set was horrible and that uh, – you know, before every shot, uh, Melville would go to the actors and, you know, like tweak a brim here, change a button there, those kind of things. And Valente was just like, get the fuck away from me. So I don't understand it. Valente had such an amazing career and wonderful politics, but apparently he was kind of a pain in the ass on sets. The way that I think about Alain Delon is this, as this giant egotist, 
But then it's like when you hear him in interviews and when you hear him talk about working with certain directors and certain other actors, it's like, okay, maybe he wasn't. Maybe he actually was pretty easy to get along with as long as you weren't trying to date him. By the sounds of it, when Delon sat at the feet of Melville, it was very much like a, you know, an apprentice and a master. I think if Elaine Delon had that ego and uh, a, a set of expectations on how to how to be treated as an actor on the set, he deferred those expectations when it came to Melville because he knew that Melville was bringing out his absolute best. Which he does in every film they're in together. I talked about the heist at the beginning, and we got to talk about it. I mean, it's half an hour. The thing I like about these films, I talked about this when I talked about Bob LaFlambert years ago on another podcast. I love that we don't have the setup for the robbery taking so much time that it is basically cut to the robbery. You know, these guys have done their planning. We as the audience don't need to see it, especially I like that things, things go a little wrong, but they don't go nearly as wrong as they could. I love that. And I love when we just cut right into the robbery. We don't have all of that window dressing and we are as surprised as, you know, we're seeing this for the first time. So we don't know that when they go to this door to let Jansen in, that Jansen is going to be there. There is that moment of panic as far as when they open this door, is he really going to be there on time? And that's why I think they allow the entire series of events to unfold in real time. There is that mounting apprehension on whether it's going to go wrong or not. And, I mean, it, it goes right the way back to Rafifi and seeing that robbery in real time with no dialogue, no music, that also harking back to the asphalt jungle, right? And the fact that Melville desperately wanted to bring Rafifi to the big screen and instead deferred to Jules Dassin, uh, I think it all makes sense when you when you look at the obsessive detail in mounting the robbery in all of its fetishistic detail and also with those incredible black masks. You know, talk about fetishism. <laughs> the, the leather masks on the on the uh the three robbers is just incredible. As we talked about earlier, he's such a master of building and sustaining tension which is part of why this sequence is so incredible, but it also is shot so beautifully. Like that Henri Dekai cinematography, I could just look at forever. Yeah, it's all about elements arranged within the frame. Quite a few of the compositions are, you know, the kind of tableau style where you see uh, two figures in profile, like the meeting between, the initial meeting between Vogel and Corey shot in that tableau style and then cut to um, front on the push-ins. It's just stunning. I like, too, that we're cutting back to the guard that they've tied up, and the only sound that you're really hearing other than him struggling is this ticking clock. So you've got that nice tension that comes in and out. Like, they'll cut back to him. He's struggling. He's struggling. I mean, it's because it, it's like, is he going to escape? We've got that. Plus, the ticking clock on top of it. It's like, here's another thing. Not only are you worried about the guard escaping, but you're also now being reminded time is passing. You guys got to hurry up. Let's get going. 
without any music getting in the way. But that sequence does have that tiny little snippet of music at the very beginning when they're walking over the pre-dawn rooftops of Paris. And it's one- such a beautiful scene. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the way that the music just sits underneath it, I wouldn't have noticed the music if there hadn't been so little of it in the film. And there are two sequences that really are set apart because of the use of the music. And one of them is Vogel's escape from the cops swimming across the river. And there's that jazz drumming with a kind of metallic drone over the top of it. And there's a very similar piece of music when the guys are walking over the rooftops in Paris. It only sits there for about 20 seconds. That's all. But it's just absolutely perfect in its minimalist application. He really is. And, you know, I know that we've all been drinking the Kool-Aid, but he really is just such a master filmmaker. And I feel like you could watch these over and over again and notice brilliant things differently every time, like his use of sound. Well, the thing about his films, too, is you could just turn off the sound. You, know, you mentioned Leone before. Leone, okay, the Morricone scores, fantastic. They bring so much to every single Leone film. But if you turn off that music, you turn off all the dialogue, which is usually very minimal in a Leone film. Same thing with Melville. You just get those visuals, and it is such a treat just with that. And then you layer all that other stuff on top of it, and it just becomes the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen and heard. I really love that comparison between Melville and Leone, which I hadn't really thought about before, but they are just like firing, both firing on all cylinders. Yeah. And really Leone was never better than with his collaboration with Clint Eastwood. And I think you could argue that, um, you know, uh, Melville and Delon were that perfect combination for those three films you know, that he was never really better than uh, on those three films. Arguably, you know, uh, Le Deuxième Souffle, uh, Le Doulot, uh, Army of Yeah, Sh- it's hard for me to pick. I know, right? Uh, uh, still great, but I don't know, the, the three Delon films, for me, are perfection when it comes to Mel. They are perfection. The one that I haven't gone back to just because the first time I saw it was one of the worst prints I'd ever seen. It wasn't even a print. I think it was basically somebody recording off of a bed sheet is Magnet of Doom. Um, I know that there's a new book about the gentleman who wrote the book that it's based on, George Simenon, I think it is. Yeah. And um, I'd like to read that book and I'd like to go back and revisit Magnet of Doom because I, I want to say that one was also, was that set in the States as well? Yeah, that's the one where they have the weird, like, Louisiana adventure. That's right. <laughs> it's like a Vim Vendors film from the from the early 60s. I can see that, yeah. It's like Paris, Texas. It gave me the same vibe, that, uh, or, or Baghdad Cafe, that uh, America was being reimagined <laughs> you know, while in America um, by these foreign filmmakers who are obviously completely obsessed with Americana. And so, um, yeah, for me, Magnet of Doom is Paris, Texas, but uh, from 20 years before. And I agree with you, Sam. Uh, Two Men in Manhattan is fantastic. 
I love it. I I don't know if it's had a Blu-ray release or any kind of... I know that a few years ago, Kino did a Melville series, and I was very lucky to get to do some of those commentaries, but I don't think they included the early films in that. Like, I, I don't think Two Men in Manhattan or Bobble Flamber made it into there. <laughs> Luckily, Magnet of Doom is available now, but it's not. It's just on DVD, but it's released under the title An Honorable Young Man. Wow. That makes you want to run out and buy it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, also, that what does that have to do with the plot? <laughs> I don't know. There are two main characters, and neither of them are particularly young or or honorable. honorable. (laughs) (laughs) It should be called two not particularly young or or honorable men. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad that that the Red Circle Sucre Rouge is going to be released on Blu-ray. I think everything that Criterion has done so far with Melville needs to be now re-released on Blu-ray. But... Please, yeah, let's go back to some of these earlier films and get those out there as well. I mean, Bob Flambert is one of, that's probably the one that I go back to the most for Melville. That's the film that made me go and do my pilgrimage to Pigalle. I mean, there's nothing left, even 60s or 70s Pigalle left. But still, just walking the, the streets of the 13th arrondissement, you know, it's just, you know, to know that those were the, the, the footsteps of Bob Flambeau that you're walking in, you know, it's kind of neat. That almost more than these later films is almost a better starting point for Melville because it's like you get some of the themes, but the character is just so like, there are few film protagonists that I think are his equal in the way that he's cool, but, troubled or maybe troubled is a strong word complicated he's just so damn likable <laughs> which apparently he was in real life you know <laughs> an actual actual jailbird right <laughs> much warmer than these later films so i think you know if we're talking about the noir universe of of uh, melville bob la flamber is the logical starting point and then you build on it through the american films le Dulo, Etc. Cetera, et cetera. And then we end up with uh, this trilogy of Alain Delon films at the end of Melville's career and life, which are just staggering and, and are a culmination of all of his films up until that point, as well as, I think, a consolidation of Melville's obsessions and themes and registered in perfection through those three films. I know Red Circle was a huge hit in France and then strangely 1972's uh Un flick a cop is not and that that movie got so much shit i was so glad sam that you were on the commentary for that to kind of help redeem that film because it's a fucking great film and i don't when i finally sat down and watched it i was like what was all the controversy about this is fantastic i don't i don't understand at all i was it richard krenna did people just not like richard krenna I think some of it was, so if you haven't seen on flick yet, there is this sort of bizarre scene involving a train and a helicopter and 
You mean a toy helicopter and a toy train? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very um, it's the very end Godzilla. of. Well, it's also very much the end of um, uh, Mission Impossible. I can really see it influence De Palma. I don't see what's so terrible about it. It's not the most realistic thing in the world, but like neither of these films in general. We're talking about artifice, you know, when when discussing Melville and this idea of fantasy. So why not have a fantasy toy train high sequence? You know, it totally fits in. That is one of the things I find so frustrating because he is one of those directors like Fassbender again, who puts so much effort into that kind of on-screen artifice, like crazy wallpaper and people constantly being reflected in these strange mirrors and sculptures and windows. And I think it's what makes his films so gorgeous. It's like, you can't really appreciate that and then say, Oh, well, he's not into realism enough. Like if you want realism, why are you going to Melville? Yeah. He's not your guy for that. No, he's better than realism. What do you guys think about the woman very few women in this film, but the woman at the club that gives Corey a rose. What is going on with that for you guys? I think I just have seen too many David Lynch movies. And whenever somebody gives someone else a flower, I'm like, "Uh oh, is this like spelling their doom? What's happening here? <laughs> it's one of Gordon's blue rose cases. Maybe she's one of the fates, you know, and that uh, her handing him the red rose is basically giving him that red circle, you know, that red bullet hole that will uh, end up killing him. I don't know. I, I think it's a, I think it's definitely a portend of doom. And I think it's fate's finger saying your time's up. If memory serves too, he leaves that rose at his apartment and it's almost a gift to Vogel then. It's like it he's sure giving is. Vogel's the rose. Okay. How romantic. Their relationship, their platonic romance is just too good for this world. I'm not sure how platonic it is, but oh, yeah. Platonic was in air quotes. <laughs> oh, okay, I didn't see that. <laughs> I, I, I did air quotes below the camera. <laughs> it's like he's the one that figures out what's going on because Corey is being set up. He's being given the runaround. This one fence isn't going to take these ju jewels, so he needs to go to another fence. And uh-oh, wouldn't you know, the other fence is actually the inspector pretending to be the fence. The end of this movie so reminds me of Le Dulo, the whole idea of going to this house and no, don't go in the door. Something bad's going to happen to you if you go into this house. Well, sure enough, it's going to happen. And my God, these characters just get picked off so quickly at the end of this film. I guess it just doesn't feel as downbeat to me as Le Dulos does because the sense of betrayal, it, it's like, yeah, of course they're going to be betrayed. I, maybe it's just like I've seen too many Melville movies at this point to think about it differently. But I guess, like I said earlier, the reason it does feel kind of hopeful to me is because they never betray each other and they go down together and they don't. Sort of like Andrew was saying with the inspector where he's pushed to do these things out of desperation. It's like they never succumb to desperation which is unusual for Melville's characters. Yeah, and Jansen's character has also experienced uh, his, his redemption. So he basically goes to the grave a happy man, a happy and sober man. 
Yeah, it's like the, he really has no reason to even be at that chateau, but he ends up being there anyway. It's nice in a weird way. I know I keep saying that, <laughs> but well, it's, it's, it is kind of nice. And I mean, you know, if if um, if you compare the ending to the ending of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, two of those characters survive. Two out of the three, you know. Whereas in Melville's universe, all three end up face down, and you know, I think that really underscores the fatalism you know, that fatalistic worldview through Melville's cinema and compares it to that cheerful optimism of Leone, where most of the characters are that, like, grinning Rod Steiger character in Duck You Sucker. Yeah, or even the my favorite of Leone's side characters is that the the general who orders them to blow up the bridge but it's like he's dying, but he's sort of smiling the whole time. He's like, all right, I'm dying. Let's blow this fucker up. Yeah, his final moments. Oof. Yeah, whereas, you know, your your typical French character is personified by Alain Delon, you know, who frowns a lot and smokes incessantly and uh, keeps his hat brim down. Belmondo, I think there's something kind of cheeky and puckish about him, so he doesn't look as dour as the rest of them, but like, to me, no one is grumpier than Lino Ventura in a Melville movie. He just looks like, like, why am I alive? When he looks like a walking wall sometimes, especially the way that those raincoats, the dusters look on him just so wide. And then he's usually got like his little pistols. It's like, yeah, he, he's so intimidating. He almost looks like a cartoon character sometimes. Can you imagine if he was your dad and you were in trouble? Oh, I would never do anything bad if he was my dad. I forgot, too, that when Delon goes to the chateau to fence the jewels, there's another frickin' pool table there. And it's got the same one red ball, two white balls on the table. And I kept thinking, watching this film, I was like, okay, well, one of those characters, you know, the, the three balls are Delon and Valente and Montan, and one of those guys is going to betray the other two. That's why the one's red. But no, I'm so glad that there isn't that betrayal, as you've said. It's just these guys are there for each other. They live together, and they're going to die together, too. An Elaine Delon-looking corpse. If only my corpse looked as good as he does. Same. I read this really amazing article. I want to say it was in Film Comment, maybe? that came out sort of as a eulogy to Belmondo when he passed away a couple months ago, and it compares his career to Delon's, and it talks about how, like, they got their start as boxers, but, like, Delon was very careful to never get punched in the face. It shows, or it's, doesn't it show. It certainly shows. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with Rui Nugera, the author of Melville on Melville, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. 
Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the projection booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday. Hey. Do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards, in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us enjoying the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and, of course, SoundCloud. All right, welcome to the interview portion of the show. Speaking of Marie Nugera, the author of Melville on Melville, and, of course, I asked him, and I asked him to tell me how he got interested in films. I grew up in Mozambique, in uh, Portuguese Africa colony. One year that my parents changed the town and to let me don't lose the scholarship, I stay for several months with a Portuguese nurse, but a man, a man nurse, uh, a couple. 
in this city, this town, there's no cinema at all, but they come from the another town and uh, they have souvenirs of films they have seen and they were very film buffs. I grew up not with fairy tales, but with film stories. There are some films that I never saw, but I know completely because they told me when I was a kid, they, they explained me the thing. After uh, I discovered cinema, I became very fond of it. Uh, I knew all the actors by the magazines, because at that time there was a lot of magazines, movie magazines, but I didn't know what it means a director. To me, there was the actors of the film, that's all. Uh, I learned later the importance of a director. So uh, I remember one of the first films that I saw, it's a Mexican film about pirates with Pedro Armendariz. It's the, the, the black pirate. It's the, it was the, the, it's one, the, the first films that I saw in my life. And another film that I remember is Colorado Territory by Whole Wars, yes. You see, I remember one story that I can tell you. I was in my 14, 15 years old, and there was a, a girl that I liked her, and one day she told me, come to see me tomorrow, because my parents are out, so we can be alone at my home. And I said, I can't come tomorrow, because tomorrow I must see Laura from Auto Preminger. I saw Laura, but I never saw the, the girl again. I make a choice, you see. It was not, it was not the year of Laura, it was a, a, a re-edition re of the film. Let me, it was in the 50s. But I knew, I, I've, I read already a lot of things about films and things like that. But what I did, I didn't know that several years later, I will be in New York and Los Angeles with Preminger as his guest. He invited me and I spent one month with him. That is a, a miracle. It's a miracle to me. I, I, even today, I can explain that. That means that my, my dream, my deep dreams about movies, my love for movies, become a reality because I met the people who made the movies. When did you begin to write about films? When I was in school, and uh, I write for the, the paper of the, the school about uh, seeing my passion for movies like that, but it was not very serious. But the first article that I wrote, it was in the 60s. The first article that I wrote in Portuguese for a newspaper, it was about Paths of Glory, Kubrick film, yes. And the second article I wrote, it was to make the eulogy of Fidel Castro. It was uh, at the beginning, uh, after I changed about, uh, I did, uh, I'm not very, f as fond as I was at the beginning, because it, 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 it disappointed me. Well, but it's another story. And uh, the first article I wrote in French, it was about the death of Montgomery Clift. And I called the article suddenly last summer because he died in, in the summer. If I didn't fall in love with movies, maybe I'll be a lawyer or a, or a gangster. I don't know. But 
It's the cinema saved me. How did you get involved with Sight and Sound magazine? I never worked for Sight and Sound. When I had uh, some articles, I proposed them and they, they accept or not. So it was the case of uh, Gloria Swanson that I saw her in Paris. And uh, I liked the interview, so I proposed it to my friend Tom Milner and Penelope Houston. And they, they published it. And after I was in London and I nobody cares about what I discovered that Janet Lee was there. So I, I asked to see her and she, she, it was the last day she was in London. She lived the next, next day. So I do the interview and second son took that also. So uh, after there was some other interviews that I made, the Melville book, it was, they proposed me an interview book with Truffaut. So I started to Truffaut, but that something didn't work. We stay in very good terms and uh, friends, friendly too, but something didn't work about the, the dialogue. So it's my wife who told me, why you don't propose him British Film Institute instead of Truffaut, propose them Melville. Because you have met Melville, you like America, you like American movies, you to talk the same language. So, and I, I, I listened to her, and uh, it was the, the chance of my life. They accept the, the, the idea. Tom Milne said, it was my intention to do an interview book with Melville, but as director of the collection of books, what I need is a good book. It's me or another, it's not important. So if you want to do an interview book with Melville, to me it's okay. And it was it was very good. How was Melville to work with on the book? People make jokes about me. Said it's because Melville it was a right wing person. People said it's only a Portuguese from Mozambique are uh, interested in do a book interview book with a right wing filmmaker, which was very stupid as well. And uh, the Cayenne cinema they 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 make jokes about that. And uh, I think that I was, I was right, and they were wrong, because, uh, as I said, for 15 years, 50 years, that Melville works for me, because he became more and more important uh, as a filmmaker. There's a possibility to do a lot of books about Melville, but the interview book, there's only one possibility, it's mine. Fascinating. He said... If we agree, it's okay. But if we don't agree, it's me who's right, and you are wrong. It's okay. He helped me. He helped me a lot because I was at the beginning of my professional uh, life, and he he trusts me, and he he opened his uh, he talked to me very openly, and it was very good. The book is good. But I I owe a lot to my wife. I must say that because. She died uh, many years ago, but she insists to, when we don't agree, she insists to let that in the book. If Melville don't agree with me and things like that, because she told me like that, it's a real dialogue. She was right. I met her the first time. It was she was. It was for a truthful presenting some uh, except of uh, Julie Jim. 
and uh, she will sit by on the floor and I give her my place and uh, that's uh, the way we uh, talk the first time and after she was very fan of Rossellini and I didn't like very much Rossellini and uh, I like very much Preminger, she don't like very much so we try, I, I, I learned to like Rossellini with her and she learned to like Preminger with me so it was okay it's a good relationship, cinematographically. The only time that we separated, that she decided to leave me, and after I cooper uh, that she's uh, it's because we don't agree about a Russian film. It's the only big problem that we have in our relationship. It was that. Uh, it's a film uh, called, uh, about, from Chekhov, called... This is from Samsonov with Bondarchuk. What was it like living through May 68? To me, it was a, a little difficult because I can't go back to Portugal because the fascist police were looking for me. I didn't go to the demonstrations. I've been to demonstrations to Langlois when Langlois was put out. But it, I didn't to participate very much to that period because I didn't want to be put out of France. What was it like being around during the initial period of the French New Wave? It must have been very exciting to have so many filmmakers creating new work. I was assistant of Romer, I was assistant of Eustache, and I knew very well Godard, and Godard knew me. He offered me a part in one of his films, and after he changed the script, and I was very happy because he wrote two letters to me to ask me to participate. So I am a collector, so I am more interested in the letters that he write to me than to participate as an actor in a film because I'm not an actor at all. And Truffaut also, I knew all of them closely. And at the same time, I was interviewing Jean Renoir and the people. Uh, I've done interviews with Jean Renoir also. Too. It was a very good period because the people of the silent period were still alive. I cover all uh, periods of the movies, you see, from the silent till the, the present. I've always felt like Melville has been on the outskirts of the new wave, that he really wasn't accepted as one of them. It's him who started the New Wave movement. But after, he was a very difficult person. to, And after, he was not in good terms with uh, the people that he helped at the beginning, like Truffaut, Godard, etc. Melville was a very lonesome person. He had very bad, bad relationship with a lot of, uh, of his colleagues. But he was right, and uh, they were wrong. Uh, and the, the time proved that uh, he, he knew what he's saying, and uh, he was a, a provocateur. He liked that, he liked provocation. We don't agree so something, but I put that on the book, and he, 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 he was very... Tell my wife, if he likes the book, he will say it, that it was thanks to him. If he don't write, he will say that it's because of me. 
but he, I was wrong. He always said that the book was fantastic, and he, he said that he was very happy to have made this book with me. The last edition of the Melville book have an extra chapter about the sorrow and the pity by Marcelo Fields, and the book in French is which published after the England. It's the same book that uh, I wrote for the Second uh, Sound. The only thing now is that I I had a chapter, an extra chapter. It was well received in England, in France only after the death of Melville, but uh, it's better better received now than when it was published the first time. For the last edition, who comes out in January last year, a year ago, I had all the all the press that I didn't have for the first publication. Did you write any more books after that? I have a lot of material for other books, uh, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm I work very slowly. I, I I've made in, a lot of interviews. I had the intention to publish a, a book with interviews with actors, another with uh, directors, and another with uh, cinematographers, and uh, things like that. I have material for a lot of books. But I have no time to do everything because I'm very old. You see, the problem with me, which is important to me, to meet the people and to discuss with. To publish, it's... Uh, Something that uh, I, it was important, but uh, from the moment that I have met the person, it was okay with me. After uh, I, that's the reason that I didn't try to publish uh, several. I have uh, very good interviews with uh, Edward Dimitrik and uh, people like that, but uh, enough for a book interview with Nicola Hay, with Preminger, with Vincent Chairman. It was my pleasure to meet people. That it was important to me. Thank you so much for your time. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. Bye. back and we were talking about the red circle and i don't know there's not a whole lot more to say i read that there's supposed to be a remake of this guys but uh hopefully la, that's la, not going to happen la, 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 la. Please, i didn't hear that no. <laughs> oh remember how good the remake of bob the flambert was come on there's a remake of, you know what don't tell me okay i won't tell you about the good thief by i think it's neil jordan oh starring nick nolte no no Wash yeah, your I won't up. talk about that at all. Yeah, I saw that at uh, Toronto years and years ago, and I was just like, you got to be fucking kidding me. I hope you tipped red paint on the screen. I usually, It's funny because usually I carry a whole tin of red paint just in case I need to, but I didn't have it that day. 
screaming traitors in French exactly. at the top of your lungs. <laughs> J'accuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only you could get that paint to form a red circle. Oh, wouldn't that oh, be? Oh, man. You have to start practicing. Yeah, really. Oh, the aesthetics. My, oh, my throwing arm going. <laughs> yeah. No, you need to get one of those, like a super soaker. And oh. fill it with red paint so you can just like spray it. <laughs> yeah. And if you run out of red paint, just use urine. Oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> or your own blood. <laughs> See, that makes a statement, a definitive one too. And quite possibly your final one. <laughs> I'm glad to see a lot of these Melville films are available on uh at least on Amazon Prime. I don't think any of them are out on Netflix, because you know, they're before 2001, right? They've got like a time limit on films on Netflix. They only have things on there that were made in the last 20 years, I think. But, uh, yeah, it's, they're out there. They're, they're not as readily available as they should be a lot of times, but they definitely are out there. And yeah, we mentioned before, you need to see more Melville. If you haven't had Melville in your life, you really owe it to yourself as a film fan to watch these. And especially if you like crime films, they are fantastic. Or just if you have eyes, do something nice for your eyes. As a Melville character would say, bien sûr. You sound too optimistic. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Louis Maul's Black Noon. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam and Andrew. So, Sam, what is going on with you? Well, I think the sort of shout outs I would rather give are my Melville related stuff, which is I did commentaries for the Kino releases of Unflick and Le Dulos, which are definitely, you know, career highlights for me because I'm obsessed with him. And I wrote quite a lot about him for my World War II book that came out last year called The Legacy of World War II and European Art House Cinema. So if you want to read more about how depressing Army of Shadows is and his, his career uh, in the Resistance, then you should check it out. And Andrew, what's happening with you, sir? Well, um, I'm actually 
flying down to Melbourne uh, for the first time in two years. I can actually leave the state uh, for the first time in two years to um, finish off my music documentary about the Melbourne punk provocateur and um, artist Fred Negro, real name. <laughs> and then after that premieres, then uh, I'm embarking on this three-year odyssey, which I can't say too much about, but uh, all I can say is that I'll be seeing you guys in person before you know it. It's going to encompass a TV series, a feature film, and a book. And it will be the culmination of um, my 52 years on this planet. There you go. <laughs> How's that for a, a, a positive note? Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the Projection Booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Mm-hmm.